HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops. Every city you go to, the Salt and Straw is completely different than any other city. We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akikotema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people. I'll try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. And my guest today is Amy Watanabe, who is the chef at Sakeba Satsuko in East Village, Manhattan. And Sakeba Satsuko is a unique Japanese restaurant originally opened by her mother, Satsuko Watanabe, in 2004. My previous guest, Austin Power, on episode 164, who is a sake expert, used to work there for 10 years and told me how special Sakeba Satsuko was. So here is Amy to discuss the charm of Sakeba Satsuko, her life as a chef at the restaurant, and challenges she faces to succeed at the legacy of her mother. But before we start quickly, uh, Japanese is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have ideas about the topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or kikwatema.com. So let's uh, start a conversation with Amy Watanabe. Hello, Amy. Hi, how are you? Welcome. So, uh, first of all, you are from New York and uh, were raised by the fascinating Japanese mother. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, what did you eat when you grew up? Um, we kind of ate all sorts of things. My mother has always been very adventurous food-wise. Um, I think that part of her experience coming to the United States was, you know, trying all the different kinds of foods that are available here that she didn't grow up with. Um, so it was very interesting. Like, uh, I would say that we probably ate a good 50-50 split of, uh, of Japanese and Western food. Mm, okay. So so when you grew up, uh, how Japanese your life was? Can you tell me? Oh, my goodness. I would... I'm pretty ashamed to admit, like, very, very not Japanese at all. <laughs> um, you know, we were very, I think, part of being a foreigner in a different place is uh, 
is this like weird desire to assimilate. So I think, especially me as a kid, I was like, all I wanted to eat was like Lunchables or something, mm. you know, like I was like, oh my God, like a ham and cheese sandwich. What a delight. <laughs> <laughs> But you were born here? Yes, I was right. born in New York. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so let's talk about your mother. Uh, I've sure. never met her, but Satsuko. Oh, Hanari. she's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> so when and why did she come to the States? Um, I believe it was like she, she got married or something very young. I think she was just looking for an excuse to hightail it out of Japan. You know, I think in that era, you know, if you were a very independently minded young Japanese woman, your prospects were probably not the greatest at home. Um, so she, uh, yeah, she, I think she came to the United States and then just sort of fell in love with New York. I mean, this was like in the 70s and 80s, so, you know, cool downtown vibes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So that sounds like a classic New York story. Yeah, kind of. Right. So uh, before she opened a sake bus that's going to Southern War, what, what did she do? Oh, man. Uh, she was in computers, and no matter how many times she tells me what she did before this, I still, like, don't get it. <laughs> like, this is probably, like, being a chef and a restaurant owner is probably, like, the only thing I could do because I, like, don't understand anything else. <laughs> um, yeah, she was in computers of some sort, and I think, you know, she had gotten in at the ground level and, like, made her money, and that's how she was able to, um, like, once... All those jobs kind of left the United States. She was able to kind of take a couple minutes and be like, well, you know, I just, I want to do something else. Mm. Yeah. So that's a diversity. Like, you know, like you can yeah. pick from one to completely end, other mm -hmm. end. So, um, so I mean, how? <laughs> she was always passionate about food. Yes. I mean, definitely always passionate about um, food and food culture. And I think also she's, um, humorously enough kind of like an entertainer in her own right she's a very funny person not like on purpose either just like very uh, I don't know she has like a very dry and funny sense of humor <laughs> um and I think more than anything like the whole idea of being an immigrant you're kind of alone here she wanted to have a place that like felt like you know a family establishment that people could come to and they could find you know a sense of belonging which uh, I feel like she's largely succeeded. Like, if anything is going to be her legacy, that's definitely it. Mm, right. Well, I found a blog on oh. the, the website, <laughs> and uh, that was really interesting. So mm. she, uh, according to the blog, so I think as her computer contract ended or something, mm. and then she realized I she wanted to do something, and it was happened to be flower arrangement. Oh, God, I forgot about that. <laughs> So, well, you can continue. Uh, um, no, I think, you know, I, I, I'm just sort of like thinking about like I, I did forget about that, that whole obsession with flower arrangement. I think uh, realistically, if you are in the sort of like sensory arts, like, you know, food or visual or even, you know, uh, like things like flower arrangement, it's, it's just like things that are sumptuous and sensual and, you know, You can interact with them. They're not like a sort of art or music that is inaccessible. They're mm. like very inside them. I don't know. That's a little bit of a tangential thought, but yeah, <laughs> I think all of those people kind of understand each other and are similar in a lot of weird ways. Mm. Right. So, well, just to finish up the, the blog thing. So, so she started working for free at uh, the flower arrangement, kind of like a florist, basically. Yes. And then she she tried, and then she tried to show her who she is, as I tried, but this, her flower arrangement was not recognized very well. <laughs> so she started to cook, bring some food, to socialize, to get them connected. Like, like right, right. Surrounding yeah. food, oh that God. kind of thing. Yeah, so, so sounds like she realized her path... Well, the future wouldn't be for our arrangement, yeah. but she realized, I want to cook. Yeah, I think, I think uh, she's always been like a, a fabulous cook. And I think, uh, you know, 
sometimes when you're a little bit lost, you have to think about like, well, what do I love and what am I good at and how do those things overlap? And once you start getting positive feedback, you're like, okay, this is it. Mm, right. Well, obviously it's been working because it's 15 <laughs> years, right? Yeah, Since it 15. Opened. So let's talk about uh, the concept of uh, uh, the Sakiba Satsuko. Sure. Um, it's, uh, it's funny because it's always been kind of a little bit of a work in progress. Um, you know, there was never a cohesive engineered design. It's always been like, well, maybe we'll try this or maybe we'll do that. And, um, I don't know. I think that organic growth has been largely positive mm. for us because number one, we're not super tied down to any one thing and if it wasn't working it would be a huge overhaul it's like all right well you know we can we allow ourselves a little bit of leeway the biggest um sort of uh philosophy though that we have surrounding it is um it is a place that is welcoming Mm. and it is a place that is accessible you know we're not too good for anybody Mm. (laughs) like you know the the sake bomb is like our claim to fame (laughs) you know it's like as like weirdly goofy as that is like it's us it's fine (laughs) Mm. yeah so that sounds like it's very i haven't been there actually but i heard it's very small yeah it is very small how many seats uh i feel like probably total like definitely less than 40 oh wow um you know like and like seats, seats. Like we have four tables. <laughs> mm, right, and uh, so it's in this East Village, mm-hmm. and uh, so you started as a sake bar. Yes. Well, first it was supposed to be like a cafe, and then we realized, you know, there's more money in booze, and then trying to figure out how, you know, how do we access that, and you know, it always does make sense when you're in a food business, like to go to what you know and to go to your personal roots. Mm. Um, and so sake seemed like the right answer and it's been, oof, what a journey. <laughs> right. Well, it's a good timing, right? Because uh, 2004 is probably the beginning of good sake trend. Start to start it, <laughs> I think. So like restaurants, some ways started to be, like Western, you know, high-end restaurants, some right. ways started to pay attention to sake and, you know, that's a good time to start, mm. <laughs> I think. Um, so let's talk about you. Sure. And so uh, what did you do before you joined Sakiba Sasko? Oh, man, I've, I've had like a billion different lives. Um, I uh, am trained as a fine artist, but, you know, I did a lot of goofy other interim jobs. I also like worked in a bunch of other restaurants because... I felt at a certain point, I was like, oh, I'm not ready to work with family. Uh, so you knew you were going to join your oh, mother? I mean, I, I never 100% knew, but, you know, it's like uh, if you're the child of an Asian parent, like you're going to work for them eventually. <laughs> They're going to get you one way or another. Mm, right. So there's a slight expectation. And then, yeah. yeah, but what kind of art did you specialize um, I did stained glass for a really long time, and then uh, I am uh, like a mixed media sculpture, that kind of thing. Mm, right. Oh, that's no, no joke. It's the Austin Power and you got along so well because they are, you guys are both artists too. Yeah, I mean, similarly inclined. I would say that our bond is um, less through the fact that we're both artists and more through the fact that we're both lushes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Sorry, sorry to call you out like that, Austin. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the so ha, what's the con- you know the process that your mother asked you finally to join you or? Well, it became to a certain point like you know the saddest thing in the world is kind of seeing your parents get older, mm. and you know she's worked so hard. Like the restaurant business is not easy for anybody, but for someone who starts it in their fifties, it's like pretty significant grind um and you know she just created something that mattered so much to so many people that for me to not honor her legacy would be just like a very very hard thing to do Mm. um you know talk about like 
what are the influences of being bicultural in one's life, the filial piety is definitely something that I carry with me very deeply. Mm. Um, you know, right. she's as much as I like roll my eyes at her constantly. She's a, she's a great woman. <laughs> <laughs> so what year did you join? The, the uh, you know, I've kind of like been on and off and like ancillary in the wings for a while, but, um, I would say, uh, like pretty aggressively joining on roughly about five years ago. That's when I took over like the food program and kind of reconfigured uh, mm. a lot of things right. in the space. So how did you study cooking before you joined? Um, actually, you know, I have 0.0 professional training. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the sake bar has kind of been uh, my trial by fire. But um, realistically, my, my mother's has always been an amazing cook and my grandmother before her was also really amazing. Mm. Um, and I think also more than being like a very technically skilled chef, I'm much more adept at understanding the systems of kitchens and how they run and, you know, understanding what is best for our space and how to do it. Mm. And, you know, I'm also just like, a big dilettante. Like I love going out to eat and I love drinking way too much probably. <laughs> uh, and like, you know, just engaging in that sensory experience. Like I, that's kind of like how I learned how to cook to be like, all right, well this just goes together. Right. Well, your mother was a professional chef, so you yeah. trained professionally. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So what's the, the philosophy um, kind of like behind your dishes at Sakebas, let's go. Well, a lot of them are, are family recipes and um, some of the things that I, I kind of like did when I come, came in is try and just take away all of the things that are extraneous from a dish and just really get down to like, what is the best part of this? Mm. So, you know, we had like a couple things that I'd like trip in them and I was like, well, all of this other stuff like is completely unnecessarily all people want is like the shrimp it's okay <laughs> um and you know I think my style of cooking veers more towards like uh like comforting foods I like a lot of braised dishes because I find that they um they get better with time and like I like the idea of giving something room to like grow and mature and that's why I like pickling and fermenting and things like that it's just like it's much more interesting to like coax something out mm. than to just like be presented with something that's already perfect <laughs> right yeah and then this there's a process itself really shows who you are right because mm, you mm, mm. check yeah. the taste and they take care of it then it's just yeah. it's a long process yeah. to perfect too. like um one of my favorite cuts of meat is like pork shoulder mm. and it's like such a I mean now it's it's much more celebrated but like I felt like for such a long time it was such like a put upon cut of meat <laughs> yeah but you know you can do a lot of stuff with it and if you have the time and the patience it'll really reward you right mm. so um but I heard that when you took over the kitchen you kind of changed the direction uh from your mother's menu a little bit yeah I think um she she tends to, I, I'm just going to say it right now, she tends to have a little bit more of like a refined palate. You know, she wants things to be sort of a little bit more elevated in haute cuisine. Whereas I'm like, listen, honey, that ain't going to happen. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like we are a small Lower East Side restaurant that has three induction burners. Like this is not going to happen. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that what you can't make can't be good. Mm. Like... I think uh, relativity is something that needs to be discussed in cooking where it's like, you know, not everything that is fine dining is good and not everything that is sort of, um, you know, lowly and mm. cheap or whatever is bad. Like these things all have their place. Right. And I think especially if you have like good drinks and good atmosphere to go with it, like it makes it all this cohesive package where you're like, okay, I get it. There is a, like a unity amongst these things. Mm. So what did you, what dish did you eliminate from mother's? <laughs> um, 
God, I don't think I tried to think about what I... It's been, like, such a long time we've had the exact same menu. But um, I, I definitely included more, like, handheld, braised sort of dishes, like uh, anything that can be, like, a dumpling or a bao or something like that. Easy to share, easy to just kind of, like... You know, you just like want it when you've had a couple drinks. <laughs> mm, right. That's called comfort food. Yeah, it's, you know, it's comfort food. It's like, it's something that you're like, oh man, this is just really hitting it right now. Mm. Well, I started to see many, you know, semi fine dining, even fine dining restaurants started to have differently shaped comfort food mm-hmm. as a part of tasting menu, that kind yeah. of thing. So I think it's a very honest statement. Everybody wants to have it. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay, then how did you convince your mother, like, you know, I'm going to change this direction. It's okay. You have to, I'll do it, so don't say anything. Right. I think, I mean, my mother is really a super funny and enigmatic human being because, like, she loves change and is not scared of it at all. She's like, sounds great. Nailed it. Do it. Like, if it is not happening right now, she's like, oh, this is taking forever. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the the concept of, like, refocusing and putting something in a different direction doesn't like terrify her the way that I think it would most people um and I think she kind of had a little faith in me um especially because like I uh kind of did it incrementally where I was like you know if we kind of just refocus this or make it smaller or do you know like I remember we used to have these, like, big plates that were just, like, and then, like, a small bit of food on, like, a big plate. And I'm like, okay, this is, like, very 90s. Like, this is, like, a 90s thing that people (laughs) did in a very, like, you know, brief time. Like, it's okay to have a smaller plate. Like, no one's going to get mad. (laughs) (laughs) And for your tiny kitchen, it helps, too. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell? These plates weigh, like, 90 pounds. (laughs) Right, so you can't, you have to hand wash and... Yeah, yeah. it's like, no one needs this. So, well, so that's one thing. But (laughs) I I think also, you know, like Japanese cuisine started to be even more popular than ever. Mm -hmm. So that kind of demand probably has shifted. Yeah, and I think, um, I will say, I think that the one way that is very helpful for Japanese food to break through to an American audience is to kind of show that, you know, it's not just this beautiful elevated cuisine that you see that is like picture perfect. It, you know, it's also very human, you know, it is like kind of sloppy and messy and it, you know, you can like, like, I think the izakaya concept is something that is so integral to Japanese culture in Japan. Mm. But once it's brought here, there's something that is kind of lost in translation. Mm. But it's like, it's just a pub. Like, pubs are something that everyone can understand. Because everybody has that place that they like to go to. They ha- It has good food. The drinks are on point. There's always a friendly face. Like, you go there for a myriad of reasons. Mm. Right. So, do you call Sakiba Satsuko kind of like Izakaya? I would. I call. I'd say whenever anyone asks what kind of food we serve, I'm like, it's a zakaya style because mm. it's designed to share. You know, you're really not supposed to go at it alone. Right. <laughs> well, I look at, looking at the menu, so you actually have classic zakaya items such as edamame miso soup with tofu and wakame, hmm. shishito tempura, Japanese style curry, gyoza, chicken karage, and it's like, like all time favorite. Yeah, it's it's the hits. <laughs> right. Yeah, but what I, I heard you have a creative. Dishes too. So, what do you think would be your that um, represent your creativity? Okay, so the ones that I personally did, I got super obsessed with um, these like little steamed buns, the like bao that you usually use to serve Peking duck. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, oh man, this is such a great vehicle for like literally anything. And I think they've probably taken off in the past couple of years. I've noticed, like I've seen them around, um, but you know, doing something that has, like, so, like, I, me and my mother both are really, like, big Vietnamese food fans, and so it's like, oh, man, maybe we can do something in here that, like, replicates the flavor of a banh mi that's easily servable, and, you know, it's like, we already are purchasing in daikon radish, so doing, like, a pickle like that is not 
super hard to do and those are like super popular and then we had like a vegetarian version of that which is like um with kimchi and mushrooms and our kimchi we make in house so it's completely Mm -hmm. vegan and I think a lot of the like little extra touches like that where it's just like you know making one's own kimchi or pickles or something like that like Mm -hmm. that is kind of where people are like okay I taste the little bit of extra love and effort and all that kind of stuff the one dish that I would say I am proudest of that is our most labor intensive is we have a kind of like a surumeika type dish but it's uh partially dehydrated and then we grill it again mm, so can you explain surumeika what it is for it's dried squid essentially and it's like the ultimate beer snack yeah chewy and salty and yeah it's chewy it's salty you want to like you know just like eat it out of a plastic bag with a beer that's out of a can <laughs> it's like if you go to like long distance train in japan like old men oh, have yeah. like a can oh, yeah. i always want to eat it with peanuts for some reason <laughs> And, like, I, I have, like, this, like, such, like, a strong memory of my uncle just, like, sitting and smoking cigarettes and, like, eating surumeika and watching baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Classic, yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, this is also, like, a kind of humorously universal experience. Like, everybody has that memory of their, like, uncle smoking cigarettes and, like, drinking a beer and watching <laughs> <Right>. baseball. <laughs> yeah, so, and that's associated with surumeika. Yeah, which is, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. But actually, it's a classic dish. And it's probably healthy. Yeah, snack. It's a, little, it's a little bit high in cholesterol, I think. But like, what it, it is though is like it. Um, because I think also I'm like really into like the shape and texture of things. I think that's a very Japanese mm. mentality of like the the mouth feel of something. Right. And so we like we kind of like shoestring it. Mm. Um, and then, so it's like, it's like eating French fries. Like when something's cut that way, it makes it very easy to like consume super fast without thinking about it. (laughs) But like not in a way that's negative. It's just like, you're like, oh, this is just like fulfilling this urge that I have to like constantly be shoving something into my mouth. Mm. Well, that means a sake will sell more. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, it's definitely like a sake thing where you're just like, Ooh, I want to just drink like a dry sake and eat this thing and maybe talk about baseball. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So it sounds like a really a classic item, but also I found a creative nigiri with avocado and mozzarella. Uh, oh, we smoked salmon and avocado. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, now onigiri is like becoming more of a mainstream item people understand like what that is um but when we first came out with it people were like i do not understand this and people keep like kind of referring to it as a sushi roll and like no 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 no, don't worry about it like Mm. it's just the way that it's shaped um but yeah i think that's like that was one of my mother's dishes and i think that uh that urge to kind of be like sort of, you know, east and west together. Mm. Definitely shows in that. Right. I will say, though, also, oof, if you have not melted some mozzarella cheese over some rice, I highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I grew up, you know, my mother would give me a really hot white rice. Mm-hmm. I put a chunk of butter Ooh, and yeah. put some soy on top. That was my favorite dish. Oh, yeah. I am, like, that disgusting child that ate rice with cupy mayonnaise <laughs> <laughs> and, like, nori and just, like... <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's tasty, um, yeah. so... And that's how we serve our, our own eaties, like, with a little bit of, like, spiced cupy mayonnaise. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, actually, I think uh, Japanese izakaya in Japan tend to have all those, you know, West, meat, East, Eastern, oh, yeah, yeah. It's all everything's mm-hmm. available as far as mm-hmm. it's tasty. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, like, in... Japan, like the the sort of like Western style dishes are kind of viewed and translated through the Japanese gaze, whereas because we're kind of Westerners, like we're Japanese ethnically, but we are culturally very Western, um, it's almost like we're taking these Japanese standards and sort of viewing them through our own Western gaze, mm, right. which is kind of interesting. <laughs> right. Well, I think... Having completely Japanese izakaya in New York is one way, mm-hmm. and I think there are some too. Yeah. But I think it's uh, there's no rules about izakaya. So. Yeah, I think the the like the essence of what an izakaya is and what it means to a lot of people is a place that is, you know, like your 
watering hole. It's like, it's basically your home away from home, um, which is something that I love about that, you know? And I think also, you know, sometimes because Asian food can be kind of mystifying sometimes, it does help to just be like, no, it's trust me, come sit down with me. Like I'll explain all of this. I assure you it's not as scary as it looks. Mm, <laughs> right. So it sounds like this like this show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's take a quick break here and when we come back we'll talk about the great sake list at Sake Bansasko. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the Welsh natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese Broadcasting Live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is Amy Watanabe, who is a chef at Sake Bar Satsuko, uh, the cool and unique sake bar and restaurant in East Village, Manhattan. So let's talk about the sake list. Sure. So how many um, labels of sake do you offer right now? I would say our bottle selection right now is around like between 35 and 45 usually. Mm. Different kinds of sakes. Um, we generally tend to uh, try and like run the gamut between very sort of like easily accessible mid-range sakes to some of the more higher-end sakes. We don't really do like ultra high-end, but, you know, it's definitely a very well-curated list that I'm very proud of. Mm. <laughs> and Austin helped a lot with that. <laughs> so um, so what, how do you describe the knowledge level of your customers of a sake? I mean... We kind of get, like, a lot of people that are coming in off the streets. So, you know, not everyone who's coming in is, like, necessarily knowledgeable about sake. Um, and so it is kind of cool because we get to educate a lot of people. Mm. Uh, one of the things that I always hear a lot of is people are like, oh, I don't really like sake. And I'm like, oh, well, I assure you that's not the case. <laughs> like, you probably just, like, haven't found something that you do like. And then people are like, well, I don't like anything sweet. And I'm like, oh, you sweet baby. Like, that's <laughs> that's completely, like, not the right way to, to think mm. about it. You know, it's like what you're tasting is not even necessarily, like, sugar or sweetness. It is starch and it is the, like, uh, quality of the water that is making it read one way or another. And what you're tasting could be, like, floral or fruit or mineral, but it's not, like, I'm like... Trust me on this one. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like even a sake or wine, even if it's zero residual sugar wine, you taste mm -hmm. sweetness because your brain is wired to detect sweetness yeah. from the smell. Mm -hmm. And it's similar to something sweet yeah. with the same smell. So it's really kind of deceptive. Yeah. But I think also people associate um, like sweet and sugar with like, your eventual massive headache the next day afterwards <laughs> or something like that. Right. But it's, you know, like, it's it's not the case. And nor is, you know, like, trying to go for the most bone-dry sake in the entire world, you know, going to make your experience any better. You know, mm -hmm. it's more about just, like, really letting yourself viscerally experience the taste 
and quality of the sake that's mm. going to really make it, I think. Right. Yeah. So um, how do you think of pairings? Do you have any philosophy or rules in your head? Um, I mean, I so I tend to like a sake that um, has kind of like a, a creaminess to it, you know, and not even in the like the sense of it being a nigori, but there are some sakes that you're like, wow, this has like a sort of silky, velvety mm. kind of richness to it mm. that is like, you're like, ooh, it almost does taste creamy. And like for those, I'm like, spicy food. I always want to eat like something very spicy. And then my other favorite kinds of sakes are those that tend to veer more towards like a juniper vegetal kind of green flavor because I am like a secret gin drinker. <laughs> and, um, and for that, I feel like, you know, you can really explore a lot of um, like light fish dishes and things like that. And also I think, you know, it really is up to the person who is, who is eating and drinking it. You know, like we kind of had like a little conversation earlier about how, Sake um, in the Western world is kind of like it's this whole new thing, so people can kind of interpret it and talk about it in any sort of direction, and it's you're like a lot more free than you would be in, say, like the traditional wine world. Mm, right. Yeah. So I think uh, sake is just you know four letters, and mm -hmm. people think, hmm, and it's like bad images of sake thanks to the previous. Right, you know, right. era, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's amazing. Like you know, it's just a juniper to some kind of like you know the Chardonnay kind of mouthfeel mm -hmm. to the diversity. It's just, uh, oh, astonishing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like once you, it's unfortunate because sometimes you do have to like use some wine lingo in order to like reframe people's state of mind to be like, trust me, this is like an actual like treasure of japan like i assure you this is not all just like some hot sake like from a box which far be it for me to judge box sake but um <laughs> but but no like um talking about like no sake also does kind of have terroir in terms of like what the water is rice varietal and you know when you kind of start to use those words people are like oh okay i get that right yeah, so it's uh, wine is a good vehicle to explain sake, but uh, on the other hand, they're completely different. Like yeah. apples and oranges, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like it's more like apples than like a Toyota Corolla or something. Like, that. <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, th they are extremely different. But I think the only if we only have like the rubric for, of wine in order, like the, the language of wine to discuss it, then, you know, until we get something better, mm. that is kind of how we're going to, to end up discussing things. But I will say like being part of the sake world at this stage is super exciting. There's a lot of people doing a lot of really cool stuff. Like we just got our first, um, sake brewery in Brooklyn mm. which has been super cool and like just meeting all the people who are new and exciting and you know putting new things out there it's cool it's just like <laughs> right yeah it's a progression and you I think things valuable anything valuable tend to evolve over time yeah and that's why they're still here yeah. <laughs> right um yeah so what types of sake sell most right now um, I would say, well, I mean, price pointing is always a weird thing. Like, of course, your more affordable sakes are going to end up being the ones that you sell the most of. But I've found that um, what we tend to do is to try and, like, highlight something interesting about the brewery itself or something about the, the sake that makes it very, very unique. Like, we send to sell um, a lot of tarasake mm. because when you say like it has a very distinct cedar aroma. Mm. So, so like, the listeners, the tarasake is a barrel-aged sake. Yes. It's just kind it of unusual. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty much always aged in cedar barrels too. Mm. So it gives it like this very kind of beautiful sauna-y <laughs> feel. <laughs> um, and like saying, you know, explaining that, people are like, oh, that sounds very interesting. Or um, recently we've been 
carrying uh, some sakes that are made by female tojis. Mm. Um, and explaining that to people, people are like, oh, yeah, I would really enjoy trying mm. that. Yeah, there's a movement of, you know, toji the brewmaster, and uh, I think whole many reasons for opening to from traditional male-dominant sake industry to female, which is probably probably out of necessity mm-hmm. for whoever can <laughs> succeed. There you go. Mm-hmm. But I think open-minded people, female or male, whoever can make good sake, that's the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think realistically at this point, I think it's like whoever wants to get in this game and whoever is serious about it has the ability to succeed because, you know, it is at a stage where it's still transmutable. It still can kind of be played with. And, you know, people are now accepting newcomers, Mm. you know, and I think especially in the West, um, you know, traditional Japanese arts have a a reputation as being kind of like super hardcore intense that like, you know, it takes 20 plus years to even be considered, Mm. you know, uh, like decent at a traditional Japanese craft. Mm. But yeah, for some reason, sake is like kind of opening up a little bit. It's like, okay, you know what? Maybe you don't have to like be, uh, like the third or fourth generation inheritor of a massive brewery, you can kind of like do your own thing, and we'll mm. we'll accept you. We'll we're still okay with it. Right. Like we, there's still room for like, you know, these breweries that are been operational for generations. But then there's also room for like, yeah, come on in. Like you just opened at your doors. Like come sit down. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think uh, international sake competition as a part of wine competitions mm-hmm. is becoming popular. And I think, well, because of the shrinking market in Japan, sake producers started to focus more on outside of Japan. And I happened to have a conversation with uh, Kyoto sake brewer. Mm. He's going to champagne, make champagne size sake. So that's really fascinating, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, yeah, the one, the sparkling sake, when my mm-hmm. father's generation was like, no, that's not sake, don't drink it. Yeah. Now it's very popular. And yeah. I think a lot of sake, classic sake brewers started to make sparkling sake, yeah. which is delicious too. Oh my God. I've had some sparkling sakes recently that are just like out of control. Um, I think that. Interestingly enough, I think, like, arts and especially, um, like, culinary arts always do well from the exchange of cultures, Mm. you know, um, in a way that is respectful and in more an exchange of ideas and instead of just, like, you know, like, one person trying to, um, or, like, one culture trying to, like, replicate it and not succeeding – you know, instead of doing that, it's more like, I see it, I appreciate it, I want to understand it, mm-hmm. and, you know, exchange these ideas back and forth. Right. So, see what happens in 10 years, or even 5 years, could be <laughs> completely know. different. The landscape's constantly changing. Right. Your uh, sake list could be very different in 3 years. Oh, man. I mean, I'm, there's always room for one more. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, by the way, who come to Sake Basatsuko? Who are your customers? Um, I would say... We get a lot of local East Villagers. Mm. Um, I think the the whole like mom and pop aspect of the sake bar brings in a lot of people who are like, especially because the East Village can be a little bit of a transient neighborhood for mm. a lot of people. They're just like, oh, I'm just moving in. Or I'm just passing by. But having someone there that knows your name, that asks how you are, um, it brings a lot of people back. Mm. And like... We constantly get people who are like, I was here like five years ago. I, you, you know, used to live around the corner and I just came back to New York and like, this is the first place I came. Wow, that's such an honor, right? It's, I, that is something that like, I probably don't take anything in my life seriously. That I take very seriously. Mm, right. Wow, that's amazing. I will have to be there soon. Please do. <laughs> um, so what, what are the most challenging aspects of running a restaurant? Oh, it's, you know, it's everything, especially if you are an independently run restaurant, you know, it's like you have to do everything, make sure like even like things like, okay, the 
toilets running. Like, ugh, okay, <laughs> fine. The ice machine's broken. Okay, great. People need to take vacations. Like, I need to taste this. You know, that's too much wine. That's not enough wine. <laughs> like, mm. <laughs> just like making sure that everything is consistent and everything is like you want that experience to hit Mm. for every person the exact same way the way that they remember it Mm. you know sometimes it's fun to be like oh well it was you know this thing was different today and that was kind of cool but most times people are like I am back I want exactly the same thing Mm. I want to like basically relive this one experience and like no judgment for that I do it all the time Mm. right so that's the kind of nice problem for having a lot of repeaters because you have to make them as yeah. a part of the family. Yeah. I mean, it's it's nice to know that you're doing a good job. Like when people are like, oh man, I always come here and I always get this one dish and it always like just hits exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah, that's a lot of work. Uh, yeah, I mean, but that kind of stuff is is like, there's like, you know, physical labor, there's hard labor, and then there's like, kind of labors of love and that's definitely like a labor of love I'm like yeah it's a lot but I I just absolutely adore that part mm, right and uh, so it's been 15 years since uh, the sake basatsuko opened so why do you think it's so popular well um we hire good people you know our people stay like Austin was with us for Ever. <laughs> Ten years. Right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> we basically had to kick her out the door. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I think, yeah, it's the quality of people, um, you know, people who are knowledgeable and passionate, but also have like a very large fun streak, mm. you know? Um, and I, I, yeah, I think it's, you know, we get a little rowdy. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, we're basically like, you know, on the outside, it looks like we're just here to have fun. We do take our job seriously. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but unless you're having fun by yourself, yeah, that communicates yeah, yeah. throughout the you know ambience. Yeah, yeah. I think you know we've we've perfectly mastered how to make it look like all we're doing is like having a giant party, but actually we're like maybe working a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to be there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you grew up in the states, and now. Uh, chef at Japanese restaurant, so you're carrying a kind of Japanese tradition. Uh, so what's your advantage being a bicultural person um, to bridge Japanese and American food culture? Well, I think the strongest asset that I have is um, I'm definitely like a huge motor mouth. I love talking. So this is like the greatest dream I've ever had come through. <laughs> um, I I think, you know, being able to to talk about Japanese cuisine in a way that is accessible, that is like natively New York or American, while having like a very deep cultural understanding of what all this is, is very helpful to people because, mm-hmm. you know, like I, um, like I've been overseas or something like that and then like really wanted to try all these foods but I'm like I don't know what any of this stuff is and I don't know how to go about it or how to even start to ask Mm. you know like seeing that moment of uncertainty in somebody and just like grabbing them and being like all right I'm just gonna sit you down and tell you all about it Mm. (laughs) before you even have to ask (laughs) like that that reassures people and that is you know part of like Austin's amazing superpower with sake is he just like immediately gets that concept Mm. too you know all people want is to be like in on the gag. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think. Uh, oh, I heard uh, there are about 120,000 Japanese restaurants outside Japan now. So I think not everybody can be, you know, the same way, traditional. Yeah, yeah of course. And I think your place is so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a labor of love. Sometimes I look at it and I'm like, oh, God, we could just be doing so much better. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's a labor of love and it looks, you know, knock on wood, another 15 years around the corner. <laughs> mm, is that your plan? You know, I don't know what's in store, but this place just means a ton to me, a ton to a lot of people. And yeah, it's, it's, 
you know, it's also a way for me to like honor my mother and like to keep her legacy. Mm. Hey, does she come to the restaurant? Sometimes? Yeah, yeah. She definitely, she comes, she like just like looks around and be, is like, this is dirty. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, great. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's just really good. You guys have a very great, great relationship, <laughs> I can see. So that is really cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I invited uh, your mother too, but she graciously declined to join you so yeah i'm so glad that uh yeah i heard about your mother as yeah, well she's a she's she keeps saying that she's retired but then she like comes in and it's just like i'm retired <laughs> <laughs> right okay so where can we find the latest of sake that's called online uh well we uh are finally trying to get back on our instagram gam um if you've never been to the sake bar we um have a, a little Polaroid obsession. That's mm. kind of like our thing. And so there are like tons and tons and tons, like 15 years basically worth of Polaroids that are adorning the walls and stuff like that. And so we're finally now like starting to digitize them and then slowly put them out on Instagram. Um, so if you have been drunk at the sake bar in the past 15 years, you might end up on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it is at sake bar Satsuko. Mm, cool. All right, and then the website is satsuko.com. That's yes. S-A-T-S-K-O. Mm-hmm. Uh, so S-A-T-S-U-K-O.com. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, it's, it, is, it is S-A-T-S-K-O. Oh, no, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, all right. So, again, it's S-A-T-S-K-O, satsuko.com. Mm. Yeah. All right. So, thank you for joining us today. Emma. Thank you. <laughs> this was so much fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I will join the party. At yeah, the please. Let's go. <laughs> Right, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for uh, show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or kikwatayama.com. Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.